we're back. It's been a minute, I guess. Uh, a couple of weeks since I did a podcast. Part of that was due to being busy uh, with a church service, two church services we did up in Stafford, Virginia, week before last, and then came Thanksgiving. And I kind of pay attention to the listens and let people catch up before I put new ones out. I was doing a series called Turning Pro, but I'm going to switch gears. I'm going to do a series called The Question. I'll tell you what the question is in a minute. Um, I wanted to give you some updates on Life on the Verge. Thank all of you that have been faithful in giving to Life on the Verge throughout the year. We're about to launch our end-of-the-year giving campaign, and uh, hopefully uh, we'll see the Lord do some amazing stuff. We want to involve more people in what we do next year, and that's going to cost more money, but we know if God's in it, we'll win it. God's will, God's bill, we believe that, so we're just going to put the need out there and pray that God moves on the people uh, that uh, he wants to move on to help us do what he's called us to do. I received a fantastic phone call uh, just this past Sunday from our dear friend uh, friends, Bobby and Nancy McGee. Yes, Bobby McGee, like the song. Uh, Bobby was radically changed by the Lord uh, decades ago, but he had done 20 years, I think, in prison and didn't have a Christian background at all. God just miraculously saved him, and they've been running a ministry called Christ Song for a couple of decades at least, I guess, uh, and they're all over the place doing something similar to what we do. Uh, anyway, Bobby called me to let me know that he had been called down to Mississippi, to Mississippi State Prison in Parchman, Mississippi, the Mississippi Delta, where the blues was born. And the head of all Mississippi prisons is a man named Burl Kane. Burl was the warden, the longest serving warden over a very famous prison in Louisiana called Angola. Angola was once the most violent prison in the nation, or at least one of them. It had a reputation for just being a horrible place. Many thousands of inmates, I want to say it was between five and 8,000 inmates. It was a humongous place and very, very violent place. Burl came in and swung the doors open wide for ministries to come in. Um, that, that prison just turned upside down and over the years became a beacon of hope, of transformation. There, at one time, I don't know if it's still true, there was like eight different churches on the grounds of the prison. And it became a place where ministries wanted to go and uh, just turn that place around. Well, now Burl is over the, all the prisons in Mississippi. And uh, he called Bobby down there to ask him to actually live on the prison grounds in guest quarters and invite as many ministries as he could over a six-week period to come in and just start a transformation in that place. So we were on the list to be invited. So Lord willing, March 4th, probably like the 3rd through the 6th, we will be in Mississippi, part of what I believe is going to be a miracle. So look forward to hearing more about that. We believe that people can come out of prison a completely different creature if they discover Christ. And Bobby McGee's proof of that, by the way. But so are many, many others that we've seen. Matter of fact, I just communicated on Facebook with a, a, a man named Wayne, who is a, minister, a person that we minister to in prison down in Florida. He's been released. He's been in and out of prison his whole life for property crimes, burglaries, and things like that. Probably a drug problem. I'm not sure of his whole story. But I know that in prison, he came to know the Lord and get, got close to the Lord and started helping us when we'd come to the prison. Now that he's been out several months, he's married, he's involved in his church, he preaches once a month. Um, it's amazing. When you think about that, think about 
I think about all the crimes, all the evil that I could have done. I had the potential to do. The many lives I could have hurt if I had not come to know Jesus. So one person matters to a lot of different people uh, when they get changed by the power of Christ. It may look like this world is going to hell in a handbasket, and I suppose this world, if you mean by that the system of belief that thinks you can do life well without God, it is going to hell in a handbasket. All the while, the kingdom of heaven is advancing, and I want to be part of that, and I know you do too. So let's get back to the question. Um, I, I started thinking about this. You know, we went to Charlotte for Thanksgiving to spend the day with my, a uh, couple of days with my daughter and my grandsons, and it was fabulous. I mean, we did it all. We went and saw Christmas lights at Charlotte Motor Speedway. They let you drive around all the infield and everything. They had it have it decorated with millions of lights that bounce to the music you tune on your radio. We did that Wednesday night, and then we had Thanksgiving dinner, and we watched football, and we watched a Christmas movie, and then we played some card games, and then watched some more football. It was everything we think Thanksgiving is supposed to be when it comes to that, you know, traditional stuff. Um, but one thing I didn't do when we went down there is I didn't take my computer, I didn't take a book, I didn't even take my journal. Uh, I had my phone, and on Wednesday uh, was the last time that I actually looked at a news website. I'm bad at that. I just bounce back and forth looking at what's going on in the world all the time. And I kind of made a decision that I'm just going to stop doing that for a while, maybe forever, I hope. I mean, I want to know what's going on if it's major stuff happening in the world, but I just spent too much. It was so distracting. Well, I got up before everybody each morning and usually a couple of hours. And I didn't have a, I didn't have a computer and I wasn't going to surf Facebook. I wasn't going to play on my phone. I, I just had to sit and, and think and pray. And, and I did do some reading um, off my phone, you know, Kindle, uh, a book I bought and, and read while I was there, and but the second morning especially, I got up and I just spent time in solitude thinking, and that's so important. There's a couple of good books out there just on the power of solitude, where you don't have these distractions. I think they define, in one book, define solitude as where you're, you're, you're thinking without the in, in your own mind, without the input of anybody else's mind. So you're just going, you're rolling over thoughts in your head, and, and I begin to think about the question, for some reason, I thought, well, I started thinking, you know, what's the what's the most good that I can do with with my life based upon my skills and experiences and opportunities, you know, and and I just rolling it over in my in my mind, and I thought about the question. Now, the question comes in various forms that I'm about to tell you, but it all kind of boils down to the same question. And it come, I, I began to think about a friend of mine uh, who lost his job and lost his house, had to spend six months away from his wife while he tried to figure life out, um, get a new place, and it was just a mess. And in the midst of that, he sent me a text and he asked me a version of the question. And I thought to myself, you know what? I have probably been asked this question and I've probably asked this question more than most. Uh, in my life. And that question, I'll put it in these terms, is, have you ever asked? I asked my, I asked my wife, I said, the other day, I wanted, to, I wanted to kind of get her input. And I said, let me ask you something. What do you think is the question 
that everybody has it. It gets asked more than any other question, especially believers. And she said, I don't know, how are you? <laughs> I don't know, I'm thinking deeper than this. Uh, and so I gave her a few bites of the apple until I finally had to tell her, and I've asked you that question. I've said, what's the question after you've come to know the Lord um, that you have, maybe have asked more than any other question? I say maybe because there's certainly many questions that we ask when we pray. But the question I'm talking about is the question that my friend sent me. He sent me a text. And now get this. He was living in a small travel trailer, like a tiny little thing, in the back of someone's house. Thankfully, they had Wi-Fi. This is a guy that used to be a police officer. He was a professionally trained driver, tactical driver. I mean, they sent him to Russia to train law enforcement on tactical driving skills. He taught people, um, you know, at national agencies, driving skills. And uh, he was delivering food for Grubhub. That's how he was making a living at the, at the time. Um, because uh, he's close to my age, and it was hard to find, in the pandemic especially, to find a good paying job. And so he, he came up out of it. Man, he taught me a lesson in perseverance and the faithfulness of God. But in the middle of that, he sent me a question, the question, a version of the question. And it went like this, Mark, what does God have for me? Now that translates the many ways that question gets asked is, this is the version you, I've heard most often, what is God's will for my life? What is God's will for my life? What is God's plan for my life? What am I supposed to be doing with my life? And you know, it's wonderful. Some people, I mean, I look at my son, for example, you know, once he picked up a guitar, he just knew. And he he was passionate about writing songs and banging on that guitar. And now he makes his living doing it. He's been very successful at it. And I envy people that kind of they kind of know at an early age, I'm supposed to do this with my life. But that wasn't the case for me, and it's not the case for most people. You know, people like Steven Spielberg, who apparently was making videos when he was a toddler, you know, I don't know if it was that far back, but he knew he wanted to be a movie maker, and that's what he went on to be. And for some people, it just seems obvious that that's what they're supposed to do with their life. Um, but it wasn't for me. And, and I, I would venture to say many of you could have a, a similar story. And even, even if you know that, you still ask the question sometimes. You should ask the question because seasons change, circumstances change. So it becomes a question like, what is God's will for my life in this season right now? You know, um, obviously when we had small children, it was it was God's will that I work hard and provide for my family. But then my children grew up and it was a completely different season. They moved out. It's just Susan and I. God, what is your will? What is your plan for my life right now? This is the question that we ask. What is your will for my life, God? And so, you know, I want to ask you this. Do me a favor. I've been writing again. That's something else that I decided to do uh, when we were in Charlotte, uh, that I, I, you know, was asking God, "What's the most good that I can do?" And it, it is something I can do, and I've seen some fruitfulness from it. To be able to write a book and and ha put it in someone's hand, not not to sell it and make money, but rather just say, "Hey, 
maybe some parts of my story will help you with your story. And so I began in the last week or so, or well, since we got back from Thanksgiving on Friday, I started writing a thousand words a day. This morning I wrote 2,600 words. Um, to do that first thing in the morning, if you know, they say that writers write, that's what you do. Uh, I don't know how much of it's going to be used, but I'm writing and uh, hopefully going to come up with a book called The Question. But I really want to, I want to do a few of these podcasts, do some studies, and, and I want to ask you to do me a favor. Um, if you listen to this podcast, would you sit down at your uh, computer? You can do it on your phone too, I guess. And would you answer, if your child came to you or someone you love or a good friend and they ask you the question, hey, what is God's will for my life? Now, I know there's there's more than one answer to that, and there's the general will of God and the specific will of God. It's, hard, it's not an easy question. We're going to ask the question our whole life. Um, but how would you answer it in the moment? If I ask you right now, what is God's will for my life? Now, I know you... Uh, Let's let's try to try to choose an avatar, somebody you know a little bit about their life and their gifts and their talents and their abilities, and they came up to you and said, "What is God's will for my life?" How would you answer that question? There's no wrong wrong answer. I mean, well, I guess there is, but you, if you're a believer, would you take time and drop me an email at Mark at Life on the Verge and and just give me? I know there's more than one answer, but give me some version of an answer that you might give to someone who asks you that question. What is God's will for my life? And uh, I'm, over the next few podcasts, I'm going to try to start unpacking uh, some of the answers to that question, some of the answers I've given to that question, and some that I may be discovering as I study. Sometimes when we ask the question, what we're, what we're saying is, tell me what I won't fail at. Tell me what I'll be really good at. Tell me what I'll succeed at. Um, and there's really just no guarantees for that kind of stuff, right? Life is all about uncertainty and risk, and it's why we need faith. Um, but there are some general things. Like sometimes, you know, we're wanting our circumstances to change, but God is trying to change us, <laughs> right? Um, he's trying to make us more like Jesus, and I guess that's certainly his will, is that we become more like Jesus. Um, but I, I want to I just dig in. To, you know, this morning I wrote... I wrote this. I don't know if this will be a section in a book or not, but I, I wrote kind of the heading is this. God's will is for you to be rich. Well, hold on. Let me explain. Now, over the years, I've heard more than one preacher try to convince me that it's okay to be rich because Jesus was rich. And uh, they'll, they'll do things, they'll say things like, well, he had a treasure. You know, Judas was a treasurer, so he obviously had enough money, he needed somebody to manage it. Uh, they'll say things like, well, you know, when Jesus took a donkey into, into town, um, he chose a brand new one, a colt that had never been ridden. So they, they, they use that, I've heard preachers use that to correspond to it's okay to drive a new car, <laughs> Okay, I think some of this stuff is, is a little crazy. And then that Jesus dressed so nice that the soldiers gambled over his clothing. And they did gamble over his clothing, and, and obviously it was worth something. It was nice, but I, I think it's a stretch to say that Jesus was rich. Was he a pauper? Was he dirt poor? I can't say you could argue that either. Um, but usually the folks, 
the, the problem I have is that usually the pros, the people that are beating that drum are the same ones that are flying around on a private jet living in a $10 million home and sporting watches that cost more than the car I drive, right? I'm not beating up on anybody. I'm not trying to sling a, a bucket of mud here, but a few sprinkles of, of dirt might, might uh, bring some perspective. Um, <coughs> we call those people prosperity preachers. And I believe God wants to prosper us. Don't get me wrong. I believe he wants to prosper the work of your hands. I believe he wants to give you abundance, but that's not always in money. And I just think that that kind of stuff gets abused. Listen, the Bible is full of wealthy people that love God. So there's nothing wrong with being wealthy. Um, All the way back to Abraham, and we look at David, uh, who was wealthy, and he gave out of his own you know, personal funds to finance the, the temple, I believe it was. And then Solomon, he was so wealthy, he coated everything in gold, you know. Uh, and then Zacchaeus, when he got a revelation from Jesus, he gave away half of all that he had. He was obviously well off, and there were people that supplied for the, the apostles, business people in the New Testament. So there's nothing wrong with being wealthy when it comes to money. As a matter of fact, there's a scripture that gets abused all the time. It says, money is the root of all evil. Well, that is not right. The scripture says, for the love of money is the root of all evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Um, the word love is the Greek word for being covetous. Covetous, yeah. Uh, for coveting. Um, the word eager means to yearn, you know, I mean, when, when money is your bottom line, when that's what you worship, you know, become like that which you worship. And so if you give more worth to money than God, you're going to be greedy and you're not going to find what you're really after. And that is is joy. You're after true and lasting inner joy. Uh, Paul called it life and truly life, right? Here's what he taught uh, Timothy to teach or to preach or to command to those who are rich in this present world. He said this in 1 Timothy chapter 6. He said, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of life that is truly life. He said to command that those who are rich. So there's going to be believers who are wealthy, who are rich. I mean, as a matter of fact, if you're the typical American, you're richer than most of the world. Okay, most of us have more than one TV. We've got plenty of food in our cupboard and our refrigerator. Some of us have deep freezers with extra food. We've got more than one car. Uh, We've got Wi-Fi and cable, and we take vacations. We're wealthy people. And, and, And so Paul was saying, look, it's okay to be rich, but don't put your hope in wealth because it's uncertain that wealth can go away tomorrow, just like it did for my friend who lost everything and, praise God, made a great comeback. But he found out, I saw his faith grow through that, that his ultimate hope was in God who would richly provide him with what he needed for his enjoyment. What When I say it's God's will for you to be rich, here's what I meant by that. Um, it says in the second part of that scripture, to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. That, if that should be the marker of our life. That's God's will for our life, that we be rich in good deeds, that we be 
generous, okay? We're entering into the Christmas season where it's a great opportunity to be generous. And, you know, isn't it amazing? Like when we're kids, all we think about is what we're getting for Christmas, right? We dream about it. We look back when I was a kid, you look through the Sears catalog and you just dreamed about what you were going to get for Christmas. But then the older you get, especially once you have your own kids, you find out that the real joy comes from giving and watching people open what you gave them. That's that's where the real joy comes from. And uh, if you lose lose that, you find yourself in, in a rut. You find yourself in a pit. You find yourself unhappy. And so God has given us generosity as a great weapon against greed and selfishness to bring us joy. You know, many... Uh, Preachers teach on the, uh, the topic of tithing, for example. Most often, they'll use a passage in Malachi uh, to draw this teaching from, um, which it says in Malachi 3, 6 through 12, I, the Lord, do not change, so you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from the decrees that I, and have not kept them. Return to me, and I'll return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But how are we to return? Will a mere man, mortal man rob God, yet you rob me? But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be enough room for you to store it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines in your fields will not drop their fruit before it's ripe, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. Now, let me say I'm a big advocate of generosity. I'm a big advocate of tithing, and I'm not trying to lose my blessing here, but we've tithed for many, many years. But I don't like, um, they'll use, preachers will use that passage um, and then they'll go all the way back to Abraham and say, look, the, the tithe was instituted before the law. Abraham tithed to the priest um, Melchizedek, I think. And then they'll go forward to the New Testament where Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and he's saying, you know, you tithe, but you forget to do all these other things you should be doing. You should have done the former and the latter, meaning you should have tithed too. Um, but here, here's the deal. Malachi 3 is addressed to the, the, the descendants of Jacob, to Israel. Abraham was also, um, you know, uh, in that line. And, and uh, also, uh, and when Jesus was talking, he was talking to the Pharisees. Now, there's a guy that actually has a website, uh, and an, an entire website devoted to should the church teach tithing. And he tithing, by the way, you may not even know it's 10% of what we earn that we give back to God. Um, but his whole website is to tear down um, the argument of, that we should tithe or that we should teach tithing the way that it's taught. Uh, I'm not of that persuasion, but I do take note that none of the apostles, Paul, Peter, none of them talked about the necessity for believers to tithe. I like it to be taught as a principle, okay, that this is a principle that God will bless generosity. Paul said that God loves a cheerful giver, okay? 
Now, I can't be real cheerful if I feel like I'm being muscled into it. If I feel like the preacher's beating me on the head telling me, you're under a curse and you are robbing God if you don't. That, that makes it a little more difficult to give cheerfully. All the while, I absolutely believe it's a principle that I, I love what one of my friends says. He says the tithe, 10% should just be the starting point when you look at how much God has blessed us. You know, that we should be marked by generosity. And again, we as Americans are very, most of us are very wealthy compared to many, many people in the world. And if we can afford $5 for a cup of coffee and, you know, the things we're eating out all the time, the things that we spend money on, certainly we shouldn't look at it as I got to give God 10%. We should, we should say, you know, yippee, God lets me live off 90%. You know, um, and again, tithing just being kind of a, a starting point. You know, the Bible talks about tithes and offerings, and so like our our church is getting ready to take up a leg, legacy offering, they call it, for some special needs. You know, for missions and things like that. We should just be our lives should be marked by gen- we should be rich in good deeds, right? We should be generous and willing to share. I believe that is part of the answer to the question, what is God's will for my life? Well, it's that you be generous and not just in finances, okay? Generous with your time, generous with your talents. No, you don't have to give it all away. But you, because listen, the blessing is life and, and truly life is there, Paul said. You're laying up rewards for the future, but you get to enjoy, just like Christmas morning, when you see your children or those loved ones, those friends open gifts that you gave them, when you see their face light up, that gives you lasting joy, I believe. I believe that giving is a secret to lasting joy. And I think I could probably write a book on how God has blessed our finances over the years. Um, I don't like the other teaching when it comes to giving, and that is to give to get. No, we give because that should be our nature, our new nature in Christ, to be generous. And, and, and yes, God does bless that. He has opened the windows of heaven and blessed our lives. Oh, there's been plenty of trials and challenges along the way too. But if tomorrow the well ran dry, I would still want to be generous because I know there's joy there. That's something the world can't take away from me. Jesus demonstrated that on the cross. He said, you can't take my life. I lay it down. I give it. And, and so that should be what's developing in us the more mature we grow in Christ, grow in Christ uh, is generosity. And, and so I, I could write all day or talk all day on how God has blessed our lives, miracle stories through giving, but I don't like that other teaching that says, well, well, we give in order to get back. We can trust that God's going to provide what we need. And sometimes we need something other than money. You know, we need healing, we need opportunity, but, uh, yeah, so we should be generous people. Our lives should be marked by generosity after all, the thing that's going to last after we're gone from this earth is the things that we deposited, the things that we gave away, not our withdrawals, but our deposits. And so I want to encourage you um, to be generous, encourage myself to look for opportunities to be generous in this season that we're in. Uh, Look for opportunities to do good deeds and to be rich in good deeds and to lay hold of that life that is truly life, Paul talked about. 
I do like that scripture says that we're to test God. So we don't wait until we can afford it. We don't wait until we have enough time before we can offer to help someone do something. We we do it by faith. That's the faith element. And I think that's what God responds to. And I can see myself doing yet another podcast just on this idea of generosity and finance and all that for my own sake as well. Um, because it's so important. Because Jesus, uh, and I've heard it said that Jesus talked more about money than he did about many other topics. And he did. He brought up money a lot. And he said that where our treasure is, our heart will be also. So this is vital because you give away time, talent, and treasure to the things that mean the most to you. And so I do believe 100% that we should tithe, and in most cases, to our local church. But I prefer to think of it as uh, doing something, abiding by a biblical principle because a conviction God has put on me. If, if I have to coerce someone into giving to our ministry, for example, I think we miss the point altogether. You know, if, if I'm being coerced, being told that if I don't do this and it's being taught as a mandate, you must do this or else you're under a curse— Um, Well, first off, when I came into Jesus, came into Christ, the curse was lifted. Now, you could say a curse on your finances. That's a little more I can understand, you know, Um, and and I would tell anyone that's struggling in their finances, regardless of um, how poor they may seem, that generosity is the starting point to getting on the right track. At least we saw that in our lives, you know, all the way back to when I was making four and a quarter an hour um, you know, living in a $90 a month apartment, driving a 1972 beat up Chevy, or no, Ford station wagon that left big spots of oil everywhere I parked. We just knew that, yep, well, at least we got a car, at least we got a roof over our head, at least to have a job, we're going to start tithing. And from that point, we did see God bless us and prosper us through the years. And so I can say um, that God is faithful, that if we will be generous with our lives, you count you can't outgive God, I've heard it said. So one answer to the question is we need to be generous. It's God's will that we be rich in good deeds, that we be generous and willing to share. That is definitely his will. So be praying about ways you can do that this Christmas season uh, for your own sake, your own joy factor. And uh, if you can give to our ministry, wonderful. That's not what this is about. It's about being generous, period, because I want you to experience joy. I want to experience joy. Um, And so look for those opportunities. And if you get the chance to drop me an email to answer the question, uh, not get into a debate over things I said here. You can, you can, you know, have your own opinion. I, I, you, I guess you can send me that too. But what I really want to know is how you would answer the question, what is God's will for my life? What is God's plan for my life? Um, using an avatar, somebody that you can think of that may have asked you that question before, or you could see them asking you that question one day. And I know there's more than one answer, and there's different answers at different seasons of life. But there are things that we can look at the Bible and say, well, we know that's God's will. But how would you answer the question? I'd love to hear it. God bless you. Have a great week. Sometimes falling angels fly
Just a reminder that Life on the Verge is a debt-free, fully donor-funded 501c3. All your gifts are tax-deductible, and we appreciate them. You can find out more at Life on the Verge, make your donation there, or you can find the address to mail your gift to. Thanks again for listening. We appreciate you so much. God bless.